0: right, the reading today is from Habakkuk, chapter one. The prophecy of Habakkuk the prophet received. Habakkuk's complaint. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? I cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. The Lord's answer. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law unto themselves and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at the fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose only strength is their God.
1: Good morning, everyone. Um, it's real pleasure to be back uh, this morning, um, it's only been three or four months uh, that we've been part of Mustard Seed but uh, myself and my wife Charlie and our wee boy Harris uh, are uh, missing the congregation here a lot but we're, we're thankful for the time and season that we're in now with Mustard Seed and we're excited for what, what's ahead there and what God is doing uh, in that community. Towards the end of last year, uh, I had the privilege of going to India. Now, for those of you who have been to India, uh, or maybe those of you that have seen films or documentaries on TV about India, uh, you'll know the assault on your senses that you get when you set foot in one of India's huge cities. The taste of real Indian food in all its great goodness and variety. The sight of cows in the middle of impossibly busy roads. The smell of lots of people living in close proximity to one another. The noise of car horns going constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The touch of people brushing past you as you try to make your way through a busy street. I was in India with my work, uh, International Justice Mission, and I was leading a team of IJM supporters from the UK uh, to see our work firsthand. At that point, I had worked for IJM for about three years, but I had never actually seen the work of IJM firsthand as well, uh, so that was a new experience for me. India is an amazing place, and I encourage you to go there. But like most places in the world, India has a dark side. IGM work around the world going into the darkest of situations, seeking to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a broken and in a hurting world. I'd love to begin this morning by just sharing two insights that I received uh, while I was in India. The connection and relevance to this morning's passage, if not already obvious, will be obvious in a moment. The first insight was in Kolkata. Kolkata is a city of almost 15 million people. IGM's office in Kolkata look at the problem of sex trafficking a horrendous crime affecting hundreds of thousands of women and girls in India alone, whereby they are forced to have sex countless times, day after day, week after week. Although completely against the law, the law is paralysed in the face of such abuse, of power, such violence and such corruption. After spending the morning with my team at the office in Kolkata, a small group of my colleagues took us to a place called Kaligat. Kaligat is an infamous red light district surrounding a Hindu temple dedicated to the god Kali. Kali is a God who is often associated with sexual immorality, immorality, prostitution, and violence. I don't think I have ever been in a place as spiritually oppressive as that neighborhood. Lining the streets, as you can see in this picture, were women standing outside brothels waiting for the next customer to arrive. Girls were also there, but they were kept hidden in the buildings out of sight. Madams and brothel keepers used their influence over the women and girls to exploit them and keep them in that hellish situation. Violence, injustice and destruction were before me, and my cry was, why? Why is this happening? Why do these people experience such injustice? How long must this continue? Where is God in the midst of all of this? From the red light district of Caligat to a village outside of Delhi, we'd been weaving in and out of traffic for almost three hours in a Delhi-beaten minibus. And soon enough, through the late afternoon haze, we began to see chimneys piercing the sky. These were the chimneys of huge kilns that fired bricks that were painstakingly made by bonded labour slaves. Now, bonded labour slavery in in India is widespread. Uh, Over 18 million people in India live in slavery. About 14 million of that number are in bonded labour. And they end up in that situation because either they or a family member have taken on a small loan. And in return for that loan, they offer to come and work uh, in a factory or in a brick kiln or in a a garment factory, rice mill, any number of things. But the problem is they are never able to repay the loan. They are never paid the promised wages, and the debt only increases due to excessive interest. We've had entire generations of families held in slavery because of debts as small as five pounds. After passing four or five brick kilns, we stopped at a facility that seemed the biggest of all we had seen. Now, this is a little bit risky, but it was safe under the guise of tourists interested in rural life in India, my colleague spoke to the brick kiln owner and asked if we could come in and have a look. To my great surprise, the owner of the brick kiln welcomed us with open arms and said that he would be delighted to show us around. He told us that at peak season, the brick kiln would have somewhere in the region of three to 400 people living and working in it, making upwards of 17,000 bricks every day. And although he didn't say this, most, if not all, of those people would be bonded labour slaves. Again, violence, injustice, and destruction were before me, and my cry was, why is this happening? Why do these people experience such injustice? How long must this continue, and where is God in the midst of all of this? At the heart of this morning's passage is a paradox. How can we see suffering and injustice in our world, yet believe in a God who is good? How can we come into contact in our own lives with illness, with family breakdown, with debt, with poverty, with loneliness, with sadness, and believe that God is a God who is in control? Throughout scripture, we read that God. Uh, we read truths of God that he is reliable and will never let us down, that his nature, character, and purpose are unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the everlasting God as we sing. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. Now, all of these are very much true, but how is it that when we face hard times or when we see horrendous things on the news like we have this past week, how, how, is, it, how is it that this uh, can happen? In essence, the paradox that we have is how do we worship at God, who is consistently unpredictable? Now, this is a difficult, difficult question to come alongside. Uh, and in fact, this whole sermon series, The Power of Paradox, is a difficult sermon series to be working through. But that is the whole point. Uh, if we merely wrap our faith in bubble wrap and hope for the best... Those annoying pops of bubble wrap are going to come soon uh, when met with life's uh, ups, uh, with life's ups and downs. Instead of hiding away from difficult bits of the Bible, let's move towards them and let's grapple with them, so that in the end, our faith becomes stronger. So with this in mind, let's turn to consider the passage that we heard today. And in fact, as Dave has mentioned, uh, and as Habakkuk is only three chapters, I'm going to touch on some of the main themes that come out in the book. So if you have your Bibles uh, in front of you, do have them open and I'll, I'll flick through the, the, the three chapters of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk was written uh, in, uh, the turn, at the turn of the 6th century B.C. It was a time of great injustice, violence, and idolatry. Uh, this was happening both within Israel, but then also from neighboring nations, perhaps the Babylonians uh, being the worst offenders of all. Given the stories I shared from my time in India just last year, and I'm sure countless other situations you can think of in your heads right now, the situation is not that different in our world today. Injustice is present, but it's just the Babylonians, the pharaohs of biblical times have different names. Habakkuk is one of the Bible's minor prophets. And interestingly, the book is very different To the rest of prophetic literature that we read in the Bible. Most prophets, and I'm sure you'll be able to think of any number of passages, most prophets speak a direct message to the people of Israel, usually calling out some issue of sin or injustice. However, Habakkuk is different. Uh, We read a few moments ago that Habakkuk is not speaking to the people of Israel. He is speaking directly to God. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. These words are addressed directly to God. Although different from other prophetic literature, if you peel back the layers of this short book, you'll see that actually what Habakkuk has to say is deeply prophetic and is deeply relevant to the people of Israel, and is therefore deeply relevant to us today as God's people. Like many people we read about in the Bible, including Moses, David, Job, and Jesus, to name but a few, Habakkuk provides us with a picture of what it looks like to worship an unpredictable God in a world of hurt and violence. Again, in our reading, we heard the first of two encounters between Habakkuk and God. If we read on into chapter one and into chapter two, we see the second encounter. And finally, in the last chapter of the book, we read a wonderful prayer of faith, which, if we are honest, is a really, really difficult prayer for us to say when we face difficult circumstances in life. If we read this narrative altogether, I believe that it sets out a really helpful example of crying out to God, of waiting on God, and choosing to trust in his character despite our current circumstance. Or to put it another way, the book of Habakkuk is an example of lament, of waiting, and of praising. So let's pick up on these three elements, the first of which is lament. As is the case in this book, prayers of lament express pain, they express confusion, and they express anger about how horrible the world is we live in at times. We have countless examples in the Bible of people crying out to God's most prominently, even the person of Jesus cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So as we consider lament, let me stress that this is an okay thing to do. It's not a sign of weakness to cry out to God. Asking questions of God actually draws us closer to God and allows him the opportunity to speak in to that specific situation that we are facing. Doing nothing, settling for things to wash over, will gradually have the counter, uh, counter effect of drawing us away from God. Now, at my work at IJM, lament is a daily activity. Now, that sound is very depressing. <laughs> but it is also laced with lots of hope and lots of laughter so that it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, We have an hour of every working day which we dedicate to prayer. This is a time where we ask God to move in the midst of our working day. Sometimes we're asking God to move seemingly, well, insignificant practical obstacles that basically get in the way of our daily work. Sometimes we cry out to God on behalf of members of our team who are going through difficult situations, and we ask for God to move. Other times we ask God to move the mountains of injustice and violence that we see in our work on a daily basis. So that's what lament looks like for me and for IJM, but maybe our question for this morning is what does lament look like for you? Do you provide space in your day to cry out to God? Do you intentionally draw close to God during difficult times that you face in life? Or perhaps like me, do you sometimes sweep those things under the carpet and hope that those things will go away? God invites us. Uh, he invites our questions and our pleadings, rather than our silence and our despair. Secondly, waiting. It's safe to say that waiting does not come naturally to me. I'm sure it doesn't come naturally to many of people at many people in at church this morning. Does anyone know what the most commonly used button on a lift is? Anyone care to guess? Close the door, exactly. We've all been there, time is pressing, we need to to go. Have a look at how worn the closed door button is the next time uh, you're in a lift, it's quite amusing. Um, What about when a question comes up in conversation that we don't know the answer to? My automatic, knee-jerk reaction is to get my phone out, let's Google it, and within moments of this uncertainty, we get the answer. How about your approach to box sets? And the addiction that I have to box sets. No longer do we have to wait a week for the next episode, we merely need to wait 15 seconds, and Netflix will automatically start the next episode for us. And interestingly, in the passage today, we even see something of this impatience which is built in all of us um, by Habakkuk crying out to God, How long, Lord, must I call out for help and you do not listen? We live in a world where waiting is very, very, very countercultural. In God's reply to Habakkuk's first complaint, He says these words Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. In essence, what God tells Habakkuk to do is to wait. And not content with God's reply, and similarly in many of our lives, Habakkuk launches into another complaint. Um, perhaps something that resonates uh, with you. Um, But in fairness, Habakkuk does eventually wait. Uh, He doesn't do anything too stupid. And if you read into chapter two, Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. He waits. Interestingly, Habakkuk intentionally places himself in a place where he is protected, i.e. the ramparts of the city walls. But he also places himself in a position where he can see, where he can see what's happening and where he can see what God is doing. For those of us that have been on uh, the city ramparts uh, at edinburgh castle i'm sure you get a picture of this you're not only in a position of safety on this huge fortress up on a hill but you can also on a clear day see for miles around over to fife over to the highlands beyond that so god doesn't just call us to do nothing in our waiting he calls us to an active waiting Like Habakkuk, he wants us to keep aware and in communication and conversation with him. So again, at my work at IJM, uh, this is why our times of prayer are so important. Being in conversation with God leads us on to the next stage. Now that next stage might be to wait a little bit longer, or a lot longer, and that can be really frustrating at times. But the next stage might actually be a call to action. For IGM, it might be to investigate a certain establishment that has a connection to issues of sex trafficking. It might be to, for our lawyers to persist with court hearings that keep getting cancelled, Um, It might be for our aftercare workers and our social social workers to try a new method of aftercare that seeks to come alongside the horrific trauma that our clients have experienced. Or it might be for a member of our team to build a relationship with a certain government official who might open the door to that uh, system, uh, their capacity being built, to a training opportunity. So that's what it looks like again for us, uh, what does it look like for you? What does waiting look like? Are you positioned in a place of safety uh, where you can speak to God and where you can see Him at work? Or perhaps are you done with waiting and want to give up on God? Have you stopped speaking to God altogether about the circumstances that you are facing? And that's really hard, that's really easy uh, to, to, to do that and, and not want to, to approach that. Frustratingly, we don't know how long Habakkuk waited for. And similarly, we don't know how long we wait uh, to hear God speak into our situations. But we are called to wait and we are called to draw close to God and finally our final word praise on the face of it it seems really a strange combination how on earth are we meant to how on earth are we expected to praise when faced with lament waiting and uncertainty but this is so so important psalms of praise if you read through the psalms you'll see this but psalms of praise draw attention to what is goods in the world. They retell stories of what God has done in our lives, and they thank God for these things. In chapter three of Habakkuk, we see a wonderful prayer of praise. He reminds himself of God's faithfulness in Israel's history, and he chooses to remember that God is a God of love who can see more than we can see. When we step into a place of lament and praise, it will draw us closer to the God who knows the number of hairs that are on our head. It will draw us closer to the God who knows the circumstances that we face. And it will draw us closer to the God who is there right with us, even if we can't hear him. In remembering who God is, Habakkuk finishes with these wonderful words. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he enables me to tread on the heights. I love that final bit of that passage. He makes my feet like the deer and enables me to tread on the heights of of life that we face. Now at IJM, there are big prayers that we are still waiting for answers for. Perhaps our biggest prayer is to see the end of slavery in our lifetime. In praying into this as a global team, we focus on the fact that God is a God of justice and that he has already won the victory in Jesus who died and rose again. We praise God for tens of thousands of people who are no longer living in slavery through IJM's work. We praise God for the support of churches around the world, including right here at P's and G's, who seek to partner with us uh, in our work of justice around the world. And we are so, so thankful for that. And we would encourage you uh, to continue supporting us and we we thank you so much for it. Uh, to, To give a little bit of context, Over the last two years, uh, P's and G's uh, have given £10,000 to IJM. Now, an average rescue operation uh, in India for a brick kiln, for example, costs around £5,000. Some of our rescues that we have done have rescued upwards of 564 people in one rescue operation. So your giving as a church has enabled us to do that, and we continuously give thanks to God for the provision uh, that his people uh, give. And finally, we keep waiting. We keep waiting on the ramparts, crying out to God for him to move. Habakkuk recognizes how dark and chaotic our world and our lives can become. And he invites us into a journey of faith. A journey of trusting that God loves the world more than we do and that he one day will deal with its evil once and for all.